This episode of Contracting Conversations is brought to you by BSCAI's Contractor Connections Content Hub. Browse recent articles providing insights on industry trends, profiles on influential speakers and industry leaders, tips to help your business succeed, and more. Visit bscaiorg contractor connections. Welcome to Contracting Conversations, a podcast series from the Building Service Contractors Association International. Through a series of interviews with entrepreneurs, business owners, and executives, this podcast aims to provide insights, trends, and tactics to support the growth and development of business owners serving the contract cleaning and facility maintenance industry. Welcome to Contracting Conversations, the official podcast of BSCAI. I'm your host, Lauren Leocoris. On this episode, I speak with Brent Gleason, former Navy SEAL and founder and CEO of Taking Point Leadership. Throughout our discussion, Brent addresses his transition from being a Navy SEAL to starting his own business, the importance of building a strong company culture, and how BSC business owners can nurture leadership qualities within their teams. Brent will also be speaking at the Executive Management Conference in Louisville, Kentucky this April. Support for Contracting Conversations comes from our premier partners, 3M, Diversi, Karcher, and Team Software. Learn more about our partners and their category-leading solutions for contractors at bscaiorg partners. Brent, thank you so much for joining me on Contracting Conversations. How are you today? I'm great. How are you doing? Doing really well. So I understand that you are a Navy SEAL combat veteran. What catalyzed your decision to serve? Uh, it is actually a bit of an interesting story. I grew up in uh, Dallas, Texas, just for some backstory. I find that very relevant being from Texas. I, I grew up in Dallas and did my undergraduate education at SMU, Southern Methodist University. I uh, played rugby there, was a finance and economics major uh, with no real aspirations or vision whatsoever to join the military or to serve. Now, granted, this was just pre 9 11. Um, so, obviously, a little bit different cultural environment when it comes to military service and the mindset uh, required for um, those who do serve uh, and did serve back at that time. But uh, I had a close friend of mine at SMU who had more or less a long time vision, passion, uh, direction to graduate from SMU, join the Navy, and at least attempt to be accepted into the notorious Navy SEAL training pipeline. Uh, you know, at the time, I didn't know a lot about it. I had read a couple of books about special operations and the history of the SEAL teams. Uh, so I did know a little bit about that, about the training itself. But at the time, I deemed it to be somewhat of an unrealistic career path for a young man, knowing that there's about a 85, 90% failure rate uh, for each class that goes through. And uh, so I wished him well. And I graduated and took a job uh, as a financial analyst for a global firm based in Dallas. And he was a year behind me. So he was now a senior and he and I started training together. So for me, just a way to stay fit and have an accountability partner and, you know, also simultaneously help a good friend prepare for the arduous journey ahead. And by nature of that training regimen, we spent a lot of time together and uh, we're having a lot of conversations and dialogue about the implications of what he was uh, embarking upon. And so I started doing more research and reading more books and Frankly, I really became fascinated by you know, the history of the Naval Special Warfare community from our forefathers uh, in the underwater demolition teams in World War II to through Korea, how we cut our teeth as an elite assault force in Vietnam. 
and just the culture, uh, the leadership expectations, how we build high performance teams and the level of accountability required uh, to be resilient enough as an individual and team to accomplish some of the most harrowing missions, you know, uh, our military has ever known. And, uh, you know, the, the concept and idea of potentially at least attempting to be part of one of the most elite military units in the world led to the culmination of a decision to uh, take some calculated risk for the first time in my life. And uh, I left my job, much to my parents' dismay. And my buddy and I, with whom I'd been uh, training, we actually left Dallas and moved up to Crested Butte, Colorado, where we trained for another six months uh, for about 10 to 12 hours a day at very high altitude to get into the best physical condition of our lives at the time. And then in uh, mid-2000, uh, enlisted in the Navy and uh, went through basic training and then on to uh, SEAL training. And that was the beginning of the journey. That is incredible. I too am fascinated by just what goes into preparing to be a Navy SEAL. I had a friend uh, back in high school and she was thinking about attending the Naval Academy like yeah. for, for undergrad. And she did, uh, I think it was just like a, a week to try it out, like Naval yeah. SEAL training. Yeah. Yeah. And she was like, oh, that you have to be a special kind of person to endure that. That's not me. <laughs> I'm going to go, I'm going to go sit in the classroom and, and not be, you know, submerged underwater uh, as a test. That's, yeah, that's yeah. okay. I always um, joke about with my Naval Academy friends. I'm like, well, I, I went to a real college. You went to into the military. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we met up later in the, in the in <laughs> Yeah. That's incredible. This is kind of a sidebar question, but what, what would you say was the most, I know it was all challenging, but what would you say was the most difficult part about kind of the training leading up to basic training within the Naval SEAL program? Sure. I think really it's just the level of, um, you know, I'll speak to the first part as far as how individuals, and I know, you know, informally, but I mentor uh, young men and maybe someday women. Uh, we've only had one female candidate come through very recently uh, who unfortunately didn't make it, but then again, most men don't make it. So, um, and so I get to stay connected with uh, the mindset of the individual who is, preparing to go through SEAL training and then watching them take take on that journey and those challenges. And for me, and, and similar for them, the, those that are successful, just like anything in life, when you're chasing after a lofty goal, you really have to create a plan and a structure and a level of discipline and, and also remove things and activities and even people from your life that are, will stand in the way of that goal. And I don't mean that from a selfish perspective, but uh, the people who won't support you are the people that aren't going to lift you up. And also just the general activities that uh, don't allow you enough time to focus uh, and have a level of discipline and accountability just to chase that one goal uh, with one mission. So when I finally made the actual decision to to pursue this, uh, I changed everything about my life, my social life, dietary habits, workout regimen. Uh, I started leaving the office a little earlier every day. Uh, unfortunately, my boss didn't like that, but uh, until I finally told him that I was leaving the organization, but I uh, really had to change everything uh, and anything that perceivably would stand in the way of being ready to take on that challenge. Now, there's a lot of unknown that you can't really prepare for, uh, especially just the, the emotional and mental uh, factors uh, when we put students through this level of training that you can't replicate outside of that training environment. But everything else, you have to focus on what's in your control and have a plan associated with pursuing those uh, those factors, mental and physical, to make sure you prepare and everything else has to be deprioritized. Uh, and then when students uh, get to the training, it's, it's a different physical and emotional journey for every single student. You know, my mentees, just like I, you know, ask my mentor, you know, what's the hardest part? What's the secret sauce? How do you get through it? And there's no answer to that question. 
And uh, everybody will have different challenges when it comes to certain evolutions like the running or the swimming or the obstacle course or drown proofing or the other pass fail evolutions that you get one or two chances. And if you don't pass, that's it, you're out or you're rolled back to another class, maybe. So it, for me, it was just the all encompassing stress and anxiety of, of the fear of failing. Uh, and then layer in all the academics. Uh, it's like going to grad school. Well, you're getting your, your, your butt kicked all day long into the night, and then you have to go home and study and do homework and prepare for tests, and you have to make the grade. And you know, officers have to make 90% and above on all tests, and enlists have to make 80% and above on all tests. So there's the academic anxiety of the program itself. For me, so for me, it wasn't one specific evolution, it was just the all encompassing. Uh, stress of the environment um, and, and the factors that, you know, you put a lot of things on the line and your life, uh, uh, you know, is on hold uh, as a civilian. And there's a lot of risk involved because, you know, if you don't make it, yeah, you're, you're not going home. <laughs> you're, you're still going to be in the Navy for at least four or five years, potentially doing a job that you didn't really want to do. So. And that's actually a, a perfect segue into my next question. So when you're venturing into the entrepreneurial world and starting your own business, you know, that's a risk. And, you know, there is a certain level of discipline that's involved in being a business owner. So how did you end up transitioning, you know, from being a Navy SEAL to a business entrepreneur? And then how did you arrive at the idea for Taking Point? Sure. As a little bit of backstory. So when I completed training, trainings uh, well over a year, you go six months of basic underwater demolition school and you go to uh, advanced training, which is called SQT or SEAL qualification training, uh, and then jump school and some other various schools. Then you go to your team. By that time, Afghanistan had kicked off uh, and there was obviously rumors of conflict in Iraq. And I was assigned to SEAL Team 5 out here in San Diego. And it was actually our task unit. A task unit is, lives within a team. Uh, task unit's usually about uh, 30 or 40 SEALs. We were actually the very first SEALs deployed into Iraq in April of 2003, uh, shortly after uh, Baghdad fell, uh, to perform uh, what we call capture or kill missions, essentially hunting down uh, the terrorists on deck of cards, blacklist, other various insurgent faction leaders. And so uh, anyways, I did uh, several combat deployments, a couple through Iraq, some in Africa and some other places. And... I had not planned on doing it as a career. So at the time, we also, many of us obviously couldn't possibly fathom how long these conflicts would, would go on. Um, and a lot of us assumed that they would end shortly, uh, but, um, but here we are. And so anyways, I stuck to my plan and, and transitioned out. And my transition plan was to have zero downtime. So I applied for my MBA program uh, even before my first uh, or before my last deployment and was accepted into that program. And so literally about a week after I transitioned out of the Navy, I started uh, grad school. Uh, and that was sort of step one in that plan. And I guess across many combat deployments in life as a SEAL, I found a little taste for calculated risk. So uh, during that program, I know it sounds very cliche, I met my business partner and we decided we wanted to be entrepreneurs, which, uh, you know, was a terrible idea, but we did it anyways. <laughs> like, you know, it's about the same failure statistic as SEAL training <laughs> uh, for startups, but uh, started our first business. And um, that was a, a wonderful concept, actually, for, for a short time it was. It was a home-finding search engine uh, a couple of years before the housing market imploded. <laughs> so, so we learned how to uh, 
I know this word's overused these days, but pivot on the battlefield, so to speak. Um, and we diversified ourselves, raised more money and started um, a digital media and analytics company uh, because we learned quite a bit about that just running that first business. So we went out and raised more capital and started a second business. Uh, we were still running the other one, but put a lot of less time and attention and it was kind of running itself. And that business, um, you know, doubled or tripled in size every year for many years or uh, Inc. 500 uh, fastest growing company for seven years in a row. And uh, but what I found to answer your question, what I found was not necessarily a passion for the industries that those two previous organizations were in uh, more on the technology side, but I found a passion for growing businesses and building high performance teams are really heavily focusing on culture and pushing leadership down to the front lines and really taking a lot of the leadership and culture principles that you know we learn and live in the world of special operations and bringing those into the world of business. And so when I uh, exited that second company, the first strategic step was to write uh, Taking Point, my first book, which is really about uh, organizational change and leading transformation, which is relevant to any business, any industry of any size now more than ever. Uh, and we'll talk about COVID later or not, hopefully. Uh, but, you know, leading change and the, the fast paced, complex world of business was already complex enough. But now layering in a couple of years of a global pandemic, it's forcing transformation, digital transformation, adoption of new technologies, uh, pushing leaders well beyond their comfort zone uh, to really figure out how to lead and manage remote teams or to uh, engage their workforce in a different way. So things that were you know, kind of already there, just exacerbated by um, the past couple of years. So um, that book was also uh, strategically the foundation of many of our uh, consulting principles at Taking Point Leadership. So then we basically built more curriculum around that. I built a team around it and now we are blessed enough to have the opportunity to work with organizations uh, all over the world. Uh, we, we're vertically agnostic, but we actually have a ton of experience in case studies in construction and working with construction and contracting businesses, actually. So, And you, you've been talking about this, you know, a little bit actually throughout our entire conversation thus far. So different aspects of, you know, being a Navy SEAL, Navy SEAL training and how that transitions into business. So what would you say are some of the biggest takeaways from your time as a Navy SEAL that you've applied to your business? The number one thing is understanding how to build and manage a culture of accountability. Uh, you might refer that in, our, in the SEAL teams as extreme ownership, but really understanding, we, you know, we, we now throw around organizations around the word accountability a lot, but what that really means as part of a culture and how we measure those behavioral expectations and what does that truly mean in a high-performing team, a high-performing organization? What are those attributes as it relates to not just driving results, but really everybody in the organization being highly engaged and totally accountable uh, for their roles and responsibilities. Now, that being said, uh, it's the burden of command of leaders to make sure that those roles and responsibilities are very clear to every single individual. We know how to manage and mentor every single individual. And you create the other element to that that's important, sort of, you know, subsets of a culture of accountability are making sure that there's continuous improvement through proper debriefing, after action reviews, the application of lessons learned, uh, and creating essentially, that's similar to that, a learning culture. Uh, to make sure that our team members are in a continuous state of improvement. Uh, they're always learning, always striving to be better. Therefore, the organization and the people in it are always leveling up. People assume that SEALs and special operators are just constantly downrange, taking the fight to the enemy every day. And we spend 95% of our time training and training and training again and rehearsing and training and you know honing our skills and learning new skills. 
um, and, and, you know, really great organizations and companies out there are learning organizations. Uh, they believe in it. They invest the time and resources in it. And so those are a couple of things that uh, really relate to sort of the culture of accountability and continuous improvement. And the other element, if we have to, you know, keep it to sort of two pillars is leadership. Leadership is the solution to and a source of all problems in teams and organizations. Um, and not just obviously the old school command and control leadership environment, but the more uh, dynamic, adaptable leadership at all levels philosophy. Uh, the world of special operations is very flat. Uh, we are, yes, the military, so there's hierarchy to a degree, but when it comes to operating on the battlefield, everybody is expected to behave, think, and act like a leader, to be able to make decisions. And it's it's nice to say that, or for business leaders and organizations say, yeah, yeah, we, we have a lot of autonomy and we like to decentralize you know, controls and decision-making, but, you know, and I say this again, and everything I'm saying comes from a long line of extremely costly mistakes. So don't think that any of this wisdom hasn't been uh, gained to a degree without a lot of pain and crying and, and, and uh, you know, cost uh, expenditures. But, uh, you know, when we try to make those adjustments to our team and, and make them more agile and decentralized and push decision making to the front lines, but we fail to give training resources <laughs> and you know the, the proper guidance and planning to allow them to have the, the tools they need to, to succeed, then it's gonna have a, a, an adverse effect on the team and organization. So there has to be obviously that subset of uh, continuous training and, and developing and giving of resources if we want to actually be able to have an adaptive team that can have leadership at every single uh, layer uh, within the organization, both obviously both vertically and also horizontally across business units. I mean, so you've, you've talked about culture. Um, so, but I'm, I'm really interested in hearing more about it, kind of treating everyone in the organization like they are a leader, like they have the capacity to lead themselves and be accountable for their own work. So can you talk about the fundamentals of that aspect of company culture when it comes to building high performing teams? Well, it really, it comes back to leaders and managers understanding not just how to give direction and make sure they're driving results, but to uh, to be a true coach and be a true mentor. That's one thing that in our programs that we teach a lot is making sure that uh, leaders aren't just developing themselves, but one of the most important aspects of being a leader is to develop more leaders. Uh, and I don't just mean through succession planning. I mean to be developing those people around you by being a great mentor, a great coach, being able to give feedback and accept feedback, of course. Um, and only then, and obviously we have a lot of this, you know, we learn predominantly through peer-to-peer -peer learning uh, in, in special operations. Can be a little uncomfortable uh, and a little brash and harsh sometimes. Uh, we don't typically recommend that type of environment uh, in a civilian organization, but uh, when it comes to really developing others, uh, that's, you know, a, a core tenet of being a great leader is to be able to develop the skills of each person. Now, again, the complexity comes with having to take the time and energy, understanding uh, the motivating factors of, and the learning desires of every single one of our direct reports or peers or whomever we're aiming to develop on the team. Um, and that takes time. It takes focus and it takes, uh, you know, us being able to pay attention uh, and not the old school. Well, we did our mid-year review and we did our year end one-on-one. And these conversations have to be continual uh, through formal and informal channels. And then people will uh, really start to take hold and also helping them with, um, you know, 
taking that feedback, making it actionable, developing plans for development around that, whether that's, you know, through formal programs or through just their own informal learning through reading or listening to podcasts or uh, reading articles and, and books and things like that to develop their own skills. There's plenty of resources out there that are free for organizations to encourage team members to invest in, um, but also just being an evangelist uh, of learning by being a student of leadership as a leader. Uh, and, you know, over time, those around you that becomes part of your culture will have that same desire uh, or hopefully have that same desire. Um, and then there's other decisions to be made when people don't. So, Absolutely. And as you've mentioned already, the last two years have been an insanely difficult test of resilience and mental toughness. So why is it important for leaders in the building service contracting industry to actively nurture those qualities among their teams? And are there specific ways that they can do so moving forward? Sure. I think a lot of these principles apply to any organization or industry, but you know, we, we do a lot of work in, in this space. And you know, there's a lot of complexity, a lot of dynamics, uh, a lot of uh, diversity of experience, of age. Uh, there's uh, age gaps, experience gaps, and in, in typically in these organizations, uh, which is a good thing. Uh, diversity of thought and experience is great, but also um, just the, the layers of complexities that some of these projects can have requires a certain level of resilience and mental fortitude, again, for us to develop it in ourselves and then in others. So in taking point, uh, I had the opportunity to do a lot of research about organizational resilience. So what does resilience look like in a team? Uh, and a lot of these principles are very similar to us developing mental fortitude in ourselves. But, if, you know, for teams and for organizations, it's, uh, there's, there's several things. So I'll just, you know, pick a few of them. One is, um, well, one comes down to better planning. And when I say proper planning and execution, also planning for contingencies and having uh, organizational redundancies necessary to make sure that uh, when the assumption uh, is that, uh, as we say, no plan survives first contact with the enemy, uh, you know, Murphy's Law will typically emerge and we have to have teams that are, uh, not to sound overly cliche, but have the ability to be more proactive than reactive when, you know, we have issues with supply chain or, you know, materials aren't showing up on time or improper expectations are set with the client or the customer, uh, or there's too much rework being done, pushing a project into, into the red and all these things that are pushing stress on uh, the timelines and obviously the people accountable for delivering these projects, it can damage morale, uh, which also in turn damages performance and communication. So better planning uh, and having and having a continuous improvement element to that plan to make sure that you know we're doing proper daily standups and talking about the right things and really focusing on safety, focusing on having you know I know I'm getting a little specific, but you know a, a weekly debrief where we're applying lessons learned. How can we say you know what let's not make that mistake again? And when we can reduce those mistakes and where we fall short, or you know you know not pushing fault to anybody specifically, but you know, you're going to build resilience into the team because they won't have uh, all these elements that are out of their control uh, pressing against the project or the people leading the project. So going to that piece is focus on what's in your control. Uh, that's both for individuals and for teams, making sure that we have situational awareness on the elements that really we can't impact uh, or that are out of our control because we want to main maintain, you know, that awareness associated with what we're trying to accomplish. But really focusing our planning and execution on the things that we can either completely control or have at least a sphere of influence over. Um, the other piece is uh, really uh, better communication. And I know that sounds very basic, but what we tend to find continually is that 
people and teams and organizations still work in their silos, you know, their horizontal silos across whatever team they're on or business unit, their vertical silos based on the hierarchy of the organization. And it's, it's, it's still very common uh, for organizations, even small teams to have those silos uh, exist. And, and, you know, silo destruction is not a one-time thing. It's a continual um, element that organizations and leaders have to uh, keep track of to make sure that they are working cross-functionally. There is a high level of collaboration, high level of communication and, you know, tools to be used for repositories of lessons learned or uh, information that needs to be shared across the organization. All these things equip teams to uh, be more adaptive uh, and bounce back more quickly and oftentimes more strongly when, you know, sometimes just small setbacks or sometimes the larger setbacks. Uh, and then, of course, there's there's two types of you know transformation. There's intentional transformation or change initiatives in an organization, like you know process improvement or you know instituting a structure for better meetings or simple things like that, or uh, unforeseen uh, business ambushes like global pandemics <laughs> or supply chain issues or uh, you know material costs going through the roof or whatever those things are that a lot of organizations are dealing with now. There's not always going to be a contingency plan for every single thing you can think of. Uh, you know, two years ago, nobody was like, well, let's make sure we put global pandemic on our list of, you know, contingencies. Nobody said that. <laughs> Yet here we are. But I, I do think, though, uh, on the upside, a lot of organizations are coming out and already have emerged stronger, more nimble, more profitable, more efficient, the usage of better tools, better technology, um, and a new mindset that will really catapult them into the future in a very positive way. Excellent. Well, those are all the questions I have for you. So I, I want to thank you so much for being part of this episode of Contracting Conversations. I greatly enjoyed our discussion and I'm super looking forward to sharing this episode with our listeners. All right. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure and uh, looking forward to speaking to you or seeing you again in the future. Thank you for listening to this episode of Contracting Conversations from BSCAI. If you liked what you heard and want to find out more or listen to previous episodes, head over to bscai.org slash podcast. There, you can also subscribe to our newsletter so you never miss industry news, updates, and great tips. Subscribe to Contracting Conversations on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And learn more about our community on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube.